0: We have been for the past, uh, for the fall season, we've been looking at um, what our church teaches about the sacraments and who we are as God's covenant people formed and shaped by these signs and seals. And today, before we turn to God's word, we hear from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 29, uh, which is on the screen, I believe. And so we'll read this responsively. I'll read the question, and then you can respond together with the answer. Do the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper become the real body and blood of Christ? No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the actual body of Christ, even though it is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of the sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And Paul used the words, a sharing in Christ's body and blood. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, He wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance. And that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John chapter 6 and we'll be starting at verse 43 and reading through to verse 68. The Gospel of John chapter 43 or chapter 6 verses 43 through 68 And as we prepare now to hear God's word let us come before him in a prayer for illumination Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that in these words, you reveal yourself to us as the creator and sustainer of the whole world, but especially as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the word of God. Lord, we thank you that in these words, you show us who you are. And you teach us who we are as your people. We thank you that through this word, you make us part of a story that is bigger than ourselves, uniting us together as Christ's body on this earth. And we pray now that as we open your word, you would send your Holy Spirit to us to open our eyes, to open our ears to open our minds and to open our hearts to everything that it is that you would have us see and hear and know and believe. Transform us more and more, we pray, into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word of God. Amen. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, beginning at verse 43. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus said. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. Everyone who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, they will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But the one who feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said this while teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Exodus in the Old Testament recounts the story of how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm. Through his prophet Moses, God redeemed his people with signs and wonders, with plagues and promises, bringing them up out of Egypt across the Red Sea and into the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. And there in the wilderness, God provided for his people. When there was no water, God provided living streams in the desert at Mara. And Elim. When there was no bread, the people cried out to God, and God rained down bread from heaven, which the people called manna. Manna, the story that Jesus references in our passage for today. Manna in the Hebrew language is a question. Manna means what is it what is this mysterious bread that falls from the skies in the desert this mysterious bread white like coriander seed tasting like wafers made with honey as the scriptures describe it what is it scripture gives us no answer other than to point to God's providential care for his people. But this manna, this what-is-it bread, is so important to the history of God's people that God commands Moses to place a jar of it inside the Ark of the Covenant so that God's people might remember for all generations how God provided for their needs as they wandered, through the wilderness, as they journeyed through the desert. Last Sunday, Pastor Brian led us in worship, led us in the reading of God's Word. And he preached last Sunday on the promises that are extended to us in communion, using the story of the road to Emmaus from the Gospel of Luke, to demonstrate how how Christ reveals himself to us in a meal at the end of a long and dusty road. The story of Emmaus holds in it the blueprints of Christian worship, gathering, word, meal, and sending. It beautifully demonstrates the profound longing that we bring to worship when we gather together on this journey of life. But we had hoped. But we had hoped. Scripture often uses the imagery of a journey to talk about our own walk with God. Whether a journey along the road to Emmaus or a journey through the desert on our way to the promised land, as we journey through the wilderness of this life, the dusty roads of life on this earth, we experience great longing. We long for the promised land. We hunger and we thirst, not only for earthly bread and drink, but for righteousness, for justice, for the day when God's peace will bring a just end to the conflicts of this dark world. We long for answers, answers to the hope within us, Answers to the doubts that plague us. We long for communion. To be united with God in right relationship. To see him face to face. To speak to God as our friend. As our father. As our good and righteous king. We bring these longings with us when we come together for worship, hope for the promised land, hunger for righteousness, longing for peace, yearning for relationship. And here in this place, our God feeds us with the bread that came down from heaven. When we come to the table of the Lord, we receive the bread of life, the cup of of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And this spiritual food and drink, the body and blood of our Lord, unites us to God and sustains us for life on this earth. Like the Israelites in the desert, Christians throughout the millennia have come to the table of our Lord, eaten the bread, drank the wine, trusting God's promise that our spiritual lives will be sustained by this meal. Like the Israelites in the wilderness, many Christians have asked of this meal, what is it? What does Jesus mean when he says of the bread, this is my body, and of the cup, this is my blood? These questions have been a central point of contention in Christian scholarship from far before the Reformation, but in the Reformation, they reached a climax. The the Reformers largely experienced the revival and renewal of gospel-centered worship through the sacraments, especially the sacrament of Lord's Supper. When you read Martin Luther or John Calvin on the Lord's Supper, it quickly becomes clear that they saw this simple meal as the central focus of our worshiping life together as God's people, the place where we experience God's presence most closely and most personally in this life. The controversy around the Lord's Supper in the time of the Reformation was a response to what the Reformers saw as corruption and superstitious practices around the Lord's Supper. And it was the Reformers' conviction that the theology behind the Lord's Supper was at least partly to blame. Medieval Roman Catholicism had developed quite an elaborate theology around the Lord's Supper in which it was understood that the elements of bread and wine were somehow actually physically transformed to become the body and blood of Jesus of Nazareth. That the bread that we eat is literally the physical flesh of Christ. And the wine that we drink is literally his physical blood. And to be fair... That seems like a pretty literal and straightforward interpretation of what the scriptures say. Jesus clearly says, this is my body and this is my blood. So who are we to try and backpedal on the clear and literal interpretation of scripture? That's quite a thing to suggest. But what the Reformers really took issue with was the way in which this doctrinal teaching played out in the everyday life of the worshiping community. Because people believed that when they came to communion they were actually handling the holy physical body and blood of Jesus, of the ascended Lord, of the King of heaven and judge of all the earth, people were terrified to come to the Lord's table. People were terrified that their stupid, sinful, mortal hands would somehow defile the body and blood of Christ. Imagine if you spilled Jesus' blood on the ground or if if you were eating the bread and crumbs fell and, and got moldy or eaten by rats Much safer to let the pastor take the sacrament for us since he is devoted to a life of holiness, to a life of prayer and fasting and confession of sin anyway. If anyone was worthy to take communion, people thought it was the priest. If God could forgive anyone for doing communion wrong, God might forgive the priest. But this Fear was so powerful that even though the sacrament was celebrated daily in the medieval world, common people would only come to the table once a year at Easter, on Easter Sunday. All through Lent, people would devote themselves to a life of prayer and fasting and confession of sin and try and be holy, try their hardest to be holy so that they could come on Easter Sunday to receive the body and blood of Christ still with fear and trembling. But even on Easter Sunday in the medieval world, there were restrictions on who could take communion. Men with mustaches couldn't take communion because the body and blood might get caught in their beard and spill on the ground. Children couldn't take communion because they might spill and then God would judge them harshly. Women couldn't take communion because it might be that time of the month. People... I know, that one doesn't make sense, but that was, that was the rule. Uh, that's, that's just the way it was. People with mental and physical disabilities couldn't take the sacrament. And the Reformers saw this as a profound injustice, a distortion of the gospel, tantamount to a denial of of God's grace offered to us in Christ. The Reformers believed that people should be invited to receive God's grace without fear. John Calvin, the theologian whose work underlies much of the thinking behind the Heidelberg Catechism, sidestepped, in a way, the theological difficulty of the physical presence of Christ in the sacrament by simply teaching that Christ is spiritually present in the sacrament and that that's what really matters. Through the physical signs of bread and of drink, we receive, that we receive with our mouths, our souls receive the body and blood of Christ in a spiritual manner through faith, which is, and this is an image throughout the Reformation era That the soul, that that faith is the mouth of our soul. And because of this, Calvin argues fiercely in his writings that Christians ought to come to the table every Sunday. He fought for this to become the common practice in the city of Geneva in Switzerland where he was a pastor. But the consistory of Geneva was still kind of afraid of the Lord's Supper, still kind of bound to a medieval way of thinking in many ways. Even after the Reformation, even after reshaping their whole understanding of faith and grace and God's love for his people, they argued that common people were still too sinful to come to the Lord's Supper every Sunday. You can't expect Christians to live holy lives every week of the year. And so they came to a compromise that would give people a longer time to prepare to receive God's grace. And the compromise that they reached was that they would celebrate communion four times a year. A compromise that is reflected in our own church order to this day which requires that Christian Reformed churches celebrate communion at least four times a year. But saying that churches ought to celebrate communion at least four times a year is kind of like a coach telling his hockey team that they ought to drink at least one cup of water during a game. It's a bare minimum. If we are to be sustained and nourished for eternal life in our walk upon this earth, we must regularly be in the practice of coming with open hearts to receive God's sustaining grace. At this table, we are brought to the foot of the cross. At this table, the gospel is presented to us in the stuff of ordinary life, in food and drink. At this table, we receive Christ and all his benefits by grace through faith. You are what you eat, they say. At this table, Christ nourishes us by offering himself. I am the bread that came down from heaven, our Lord tells us in our passage for today. My flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in them. At this table, we are gathered together in one body by one spirit as grain is gathered from many hills into one loaf and grapes from many vines into one cup. This radical self-giving of our Lord to his people causes many to turn away. And how often don't we do the same thing? Our Lord says, come to me and I will give you rest. But we labor through our busy lives thinking that if we can just get ahead, if we can just get ahead, our hard work will earn us blessings and prosperity. Our Lord says, come to me and I will satisfy your hunger and thirst for righteousness. But we fill our hearts with shallow entertainment that does not satisfy. Our Lord says, Come to me, for you are the chosen of God. But we look for worth in our social standing, in the power that we hold, in the respect that our position in society demands. Our Lord says, Come to me, and I will show you that you are loved by God. And we still measure our loves and likes, and shares. Sometimes I wonder whether our denominational aversion to weekly communion stems from the fact that we don't really think we need God's grace to get through every week. How many of us, when confronted with the distractions of this world, Respond with the words of Peter. Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. But this sign and pledge, this promise of communion with our Lord at his table is our assurance. At this table, God assures us that through his Holy Spirit, we share in the body and blood of Christ as surely as we receive these holy signs. At this table, our Lord assures us that all the suffering and obedience of Christ is ours, just as if we had personally suffered and paid for all our sins. At this table, our Lord nourishes us with his own self, with his own being. And the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us, unites us more and more to Christ's blessed body to such an extent that even though he is in heaven and we are here on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And we forever live and are governed by one spirit. United. Together, as the body of Christ here on this earth. At this table, we receive Christ and all his benefits. Our hunger is satisfied. Our lives are renewed. Our souls are sustained for our journey through this world until the day when he comes again and our labors will cease and our sufferings will end and we will live with our Lord in everlasting peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, O Lord, our God and our King, at this great feast that you have prepared, we bless you and praise your holy name. We thank you. For the gift of your son Jesus Christ. Who takes away our sins. Who gives us his spirit to guide us in righteousness. Who refreshes and sustains us. For our walk upon this earth. We thank you. That you present to us the gospel in the ordinary elements of bread and drink. We thank you that your promises are true for us as surely, as certainly, as we can hold bread and drink in our hands and eat and drink it with our mouths. We thank you that you have given us your son for our nourishment. And we pray that your Holy Spirit may sustain us every day of our lives by giving us this grace through faith.